right, all right, everybody, go ahead and find your seats. Man, it's so good to see your smiling faces week one without any masks. Oh my gosh, this is great. Hey, you guys, if we, if we haven't met, my name's Andrew, one of the pastors here, thrilled you made it. We're worshiping Jesus on Independence Day. So happy Independence Day. I love how everybody's representing with the red, white, and blue. That's awesome. You guys are making it look good today. You know, I was praying this week, getting ready, because I knew this gathering would be happening on July 4th, and I was, of course, thanking God for the country that I live in, but I was also reminded that every single Sunday is Resurrection Day, that we celebrate real freedom, real liberation, and we celebrate that Jesus is alive and that we are, in the language of 2 Corinthians, new creations already. The old is gone, the new is here. Amen? Yeah. So I have a couple announcements for you before we dive into our teaching uh, Lauren's going to repeat them in a minute because they're super important. The first one is this. Starting next week, we are shifting our gathering times from 9 and 11 to 8 and 10. And the reason for that is we kind of want to beat the heat. If you hadn't noticed, it gets super hot in here, especially on the hot summer days. So we want to kind of beat the heat. The other thing is we also kind of want to even out the gatherings. Typically, the 9 a.m. has been more heavily attended than the 11. So we wanted to do that. And we also, as you know, are making room for kids' space again. We are hosting kids' gatherings upstairs starting next Sunday, which is so exciting. And we are going to have kids' classes at the 10 a.m at the 10 a.m. for now. And the more of you who step forward to serve our kids, the more opportunities uh, we can actually, or the, the more likelihood we'll be able to serve uh, uh, kids at the 8 a.m. as well. So for now, 10 a.m. Um, and we will see you guys next week starting at either 8 or 10. And those of us who are like early morning people, like to get in and get on with our day to go like enjoy the river or the lake or whatever, we, we got you covered, 8 a.m. and 10. Okay, so um, we are just going to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. I thought about doing a July 4th message and I thought to myself, you know what, let's stay on track with our series on the Sermon. So why don't you stand with me and we're going to read the text together, okay? This is actually um, a longer section than uh, we've, uh, we've done the last few weeks. So rather than you try and keep pace with me and read the whole text with me, why don't you just let me read it for us all? And then you guys can sort of just absorb what the, what the scripture is saying. Now, I've said this a couple times, but the reason why we stand and the reason why we pay close attention to the word of God is because it's so much more important than anything I have to say is what Jesus had to say 2,000 years ago, Sermon on the Mount. Okay, here we go. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. All right, 
Happy Fourth of July, everybody. Now let's just have a good long chat about murder. What do you guys think? <laughs> no, seriously, this is, a, this is another one of those really heavy passages. Um, and don't worry, I'm aware that this is not a true crime podcast. This is a Bible study. And it's good for us that Jesus always goes there with the difficult subjects because, quite frankly, we need his guidance in all of life and especially the difficult parts of life. And so I'm titling this message, Deliver Us From Anger. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for your word. And thank you, Jesus, that in addition to living in a free country, you have set us free from sin and death. And we are alive now because of our relationship to you. And that is what we celebrate. And we also want to follow you faithfully. We want to love you passionately and follow you faithfully. And Jesus, we thank you for your vision of life without anger without being stuck in the cycles of toxic anger, but you've given us a way to walk free. And so we want to hear your voice today. We pray that you would speak mightily and um, that we would uh, glorify you in the, in the way that we live. Thank you for this vision you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, go ahead and find your seats, you guys. Um, so it's hard to start a message like this, given the words that we just read. But as I was preparing for this message, I just keep thinking about my friend, Nicole. Nicole's dad, Rich, was the pastor of the church I, was, I grew up in as a kid. And he also gave me my first job in ministry. I was 19 and they hired me to be their youth pastor, which was kind of a bad decision on his part. I think he probably still regrets it, but that's a story for another time. Uh, but Nicole was this incredible person. She loved adventure, she was the life of the party, she was an amazing daughter and wife and mother. Um, but in 2014, she was in the parking lot of her work and a teenage boy who was awaiting trial for another crime came over to her and stabbed her to death in a completely random act of violence. And it was horrible. In fact, Grace and I were supposed to hang out with Nicole's sister and brother-in-law that weekend but we got a frantic call from another member of the family who said, you gotta send them back, something horrible has just happened. And it's the only person in my life that I've lost that way. And it was excruciating to say the least. So when I think about Nicole, it's abundantly clear why the Bible teaches against murder. She, like you and I, was made in the image of God. She has innate value because God handcrafted her, Psalm 139 says, in her mother's womb. He loves her. He created her to flourish, as we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He created her to enjoy his presence and to have life to the full, John 10.10. So none of us have the right to take someone else's life into God's hands. And this is, of course, why what happened to Nicole was downright evil. It was dehumanizing. It was horrible. She was robbed of the right and the life that God had given her, and she was taken from us, her friends and her family. I have more to Nicole's story that I want to share in a minute, but before I do that, let's just make it really clear. There's no mystery why thou shalt not kill is found in the Ten Commandments. It's the worst thing that someone can do to another person. But here in the sermon, Jesus is taking things to a whole new level. First, he affirms the teaching from the Ten Commandments. He's confirming it or affirming it. But then he also shows us how we can be delivered from the vicious cycles of anger to the healing cycle of making peace. 
This is the purpose. This is the intent. This is what this passage is all about. That statement that I just quoted to you is the heart of this passage. Jesus wants to teach you how you can make peace in your broken relationships, and he wants you to be free from the vicious cycle of anger. And I'm going to show you how we got there, how we came to that conclusion as we go sort of through the Bible study today, and then we'll wrap up by applying it to life, okay? Sound good? Let's get after it, okay? So first we have to look at the context. What we want to know, um, when we want to know what the scripture is trying to say, we look at the scripture around it. That's one of the first most basic uh, techniques of interpreting the Bible. And if you were here last week, you may remember that Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And you might remember that Jesus at the same time was being accused by the religious leaders and the religious elites of devaluing the word of God and ignoring the commandments of scripture. But Jesus, if you recall, he clapped back at them and said, actually, I'm not ignoring the law and the prophets. It's, it's, it's actually much different than that. The law and the prophets are, were written to foretell of my coming. They were actually written about me. And, and they're being fulfilled in, in my life and ministry. And it was probably that statement, scholars think, that Jesus uh, was on the Pharisees' radar to kill as soon as possible. is because he was making this very bold claim about who he was and how he was fulfilling the law and prophets. Now, we don't have time to go through all the details of what we talked about last week, so if you missed it, please go back and listen to last week's podcast. But Jesus had another critique of the religious elites. He said that their reading of the law and the prophets, which is what we call the Old Testament. So the law and the prophets is sort of Hebrew shorthand of saying the Old Testament. And he was saying that their reading of the Old Testament was way too flat. They had reduced the, the beautiful story of God's love and patience and heart and plan of redemption to save the world through Messiah down to a list of laws, which is actually a very small portion of the law and the prophets. So this would be like, I was thinking about what this would be like. This would be like watching Star Wars to try and understand how to build a rocket ship. It's just not the point of it. It's not what it's for. And they, so the religious elites, if you know the story of the Bible, you know they had the rules down pat. They were really good at following the rules. They even added to the rules to be extra safe. But they had completely lost the plot line. They had lost the purpose. They didn't understand what the law and the prophets were for. They didn't know God's heart. They weren't tracking with his plan to redeem and save the world. They were just in this religious system of building a pseudo-spiritual ladder, and they were self-righteous about it. And God came against them through Jesus in a very strong way. So the reason that Jesus keeps bringing this up and why it's so important for us, for you and me, to, 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 uh, to, to hear him out is because it's very easy for us to fall into that same trap where we just hide out in our little Christian communities waiting for Jesus to return, congratulating ourselves for getting saved and judging and condemning the world for all of its evil. That is not the message and that is not uh, what your Christian life is for. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Hashtag message from two weeks ago. We have to get the purpose and the point of our spirituality. It is not so that we can hide out and isolate and wait for the return of Jesus. It's because Jesus is returning soon, we have a message to get out and we have a love that we need to share. So what Jesus proceeds to do in this section of scripture and the ones following is he gives us six examples 
of how he interprets the law and the prophets in light of the reality, in light of the reality that he's now here standing right in front of them. So he's giving six examples of his reading of the law. And each example that he gives is tagged with that familiar phrase, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And some of you have read that phrase uh, dozens of times throughout your life um, as in your Bible reading, and you might be able to recite many of this from memory. But the way that the Western church has often read this section of scripture is what's called the antithesis interpretation. And it goes like this. Jesus is essentially modifying and refuting parts of the law, and he's making it even more idealistic. That's how the antithesis interpretation goes. And this leads to all kinds of unfortunate conclusions, uh, like the one that I heard recently was, well, Jesus is clearly presenting something that's far too unattainable. He obviously never actually meant for us to try and live this way. I've had a friend who is a Christian who made that suggestion to me, and he couldn't be more more wrong about that because Jesus is giving us an ethical vision to live into. But what Jesus is actually doing is he's interpreting the heart of the Old Testament for a generation who had completely lost the story of God's redemption and he's deepening it in light of his coming. So if I lost you, please come back to me here because this is an important point, the conclusion of what I've said so far. The controversy of Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, is who he's claiming to be. The authority that he claims to have in interpreting the scripture, it was a very bold statement that Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I will say unto you. And the other thing that's just paramount here is his claim to perfectly embody true righteousness from the scriptures. He's saying, I'm going to show you how it's done. So we can't miss this. We believe at Riverbend, Jesus is the son of God, which means that he predated the law and the prophets. In fact, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, he breathed or he was the, in, the inspiring person behind the law and the prophets. And he's telling his audience, this is how you were supposed to hear that command, thou shall not kill. And by the way, watch closely because I'm going to show you how it's perfectly done. And that's what Jesus is up to. So Jesus is not just a communicator of truth. He's an arbitrator of truth. And now he is the embodiment of truth. He's the embodiment of true righteousness. So with all of that background, now let's reread that section of scripture and follow Jesus' train of thought. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So whether we like to admit it or not, the Western world, our community, the story of humanity is completely tainted with murder and violence. We see it even in an idyllic place like Bend. And if you don't believe me, just read the headlines or talk to a police officer in town. And it's interesting because for as destructive as the coronavirus was in America, during shelter in place, there was far fewer fatalities due to things like gun violence. And then as soon as restrictions began to lift, violence returned as the norm on your Google News feed. So violence is baked into the human story. It's also baked into the story of the Bible too. Genesis chapter three and four tell the story of the first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelling against God. And then chapter four tells the story of it escalating really quickly. And the first offspring, Cain, kills his brother Abel. And most of you, you know this story. Cain is jealous of Abel because his offering was accepted by God and his wasn't. So verse 5 says that Cain was very angry 
and his face was downcast. And look at verse 6. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I love this passage. What God is saying to Cain, he's, he's saying that remaining in anger will lead to horrible consequences. Remaining in anger will lead to horrible consequences. But if he chooses, he can master his anger and do well. And so this is a cautionary message about the devastating effects of the vicious cycle of living in anger without working through it. And unfortunately, Cain does not receive the message. And Cain is mastered by his anger, and his anger gets the better of him, and he ends up killing his brother Abel. But unlike the stories from pop culture that sort of glorify murder, the Bible doesn't suggest that Cain asserted his power over Abel. The Bible depicts Cain as powerless and has overcome with anger to the point that he can't even control his emotions, he is depicted in the Bible as an emotional child. So we have to understand the way that the scripture talks about anger and murder and violence. And this is what living in anger does. It robs you of power, it begins to control you. And tragically, there is this thread in the Bible that sort of tracks with the story of Cain and Abel. You have Lamech, you have Joseph's brothers, you have Pharaoh, you even have King David, who's God's man, who falls into this same trap of living in anger, which leads to violence. Which is, of course, why God commands, thou shall not kill. But again, Jesus is making an argument to the religious elites, to the religious rule followers. If all you're doing is refraining from murder, then you're not truly righteous. You actually need to have an, a greater righteousness. In other words, you're not getting tons of credit for not murdering somebody. In fact, I would venture to say that not many of us, if any of us, understand the impulse to kill someone. If we do, we should probably talk at, after the gathering. I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'll put Brooke in between us as like a buffer and we'll talk, it'll be good. <laughs> but the external rule following is not the full message of the story of God. The external rule following is not the full message of the story of God. True righteousness is not just about the absence of violence. It's about dealing with the vicious cycle of anger. And it's about the presence of reconciliation and love and patience and forgiveness and grace. That is the full message of the story of God. It's not the absence of violence. It's the presence of reconciliation and love. Amen? So why is this the case? I love that question, why? Why is this the case? Well, because that's who God is, and that's what God does. The plot line of the story of God is God revealing himself to his people as a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and is quick to forgive. That is, by the way, Exodus chapter 34, well worth your time. That's what true strength, true character, and true righteousness looks like. It looks like how God has been revealed to us through the law and the prophets. He is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. So Jesus is not changing the Torah, but he's saying that this is the true intent of the Torah, and watch closely because I'm about to show you how it's perfectly done. And that's a much deeper lesson, isn't it? Then thou shalt not kill. And unlike the impulse to do violence, Many of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, can totally relate to that impulse to harbor unforgiveness, 
to be triggered and to react in anger, to insult people who disagree with us and who are coming against us. And according to the Bible, that's not an expression of our self-will or our strength as is often portrayed in pop culture. It's actually an example of our powerlessness and our emotional immaturity. And there's going to be more on that in a minute. But before we go any further, some of you are like the Bible nerds in the room. And I love you, by the way. I'm a Bible nerd myself. Some of the Bible nerds in the room are going, wait a second. Did Jesus really command us not to be angry? Because if you know the story of the Gospels, you know at many occasions throughout them, Jesus himself is angry. For example, look at Mark chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone and then Jesus asked them which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil to save life or to kill but they remained silent and then this is what the Bible says about Jesus he looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to them man stretch out your hand and he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored the Pharisees were using a man made in God's image who was physically impaired as a pawn in their game to entrap Jesus and Jesus was furious with them about it you could also look at Matthew chapter 23 this is Jesus woe to you Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold of the temple or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Does that sound like a man who's calm, cool, and collected to you? Not to me. And you can also look at Matthew chapter 21. That's the story of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple for money changers who were essentially exploiting the people of God in the temple of God in order to make money. You could also look at many different passages in the law and the prophets of God's anger. You could look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. God gets angry. So what's the story here? Andrew Lester, he wrote this book, The Angry Christian. And in it, he says this, God's anger is rooted in God's love especially his love for the powerless. Scripture is clear that God becomes particularly angry in response to injustice against the helpless, widows, orphans, and other needy and oppressed persons. So when humans relate to other humans in ways that are abusive, oppressive, and painful, then God's fully invested and committed love is threatened, and God gets angry. So yes, God was angry when that man took Nicole's life. He was angry about that. He was angry when the Pharisees tried to manipulate a man's disability to entrap Jesus in a pseudo-spiritual whatever. Jesus is angry at racism and he's angry at all forms of injustice and violence. And he's angry when people who claim to represent him perpetuate that injustice. In fact, we can make an argument from scripture that he's most angry about that. People who, in his name, supposedly perpetuate injustice so is God really commanding us not to be angry well 
First of all, it's important to note here that most of the time when I'm angry, it's not holy anger against injustice. It's because my kids like mildly disrespected me or something like that. It's not exactly the same thing. But also, touche to all the Bible students out there because you're exactly right. That's not what Jesus is doing. Verse 22 is not a command against anger. It's a diagnosis of the vicious cycle of anger. It's a diagnosis. Technically speaking, it's a participle. We're not going to get into the Greek grammar. But essentially, Jesus is diagnosing the vicious cycle of living in anger that results in devastating just, uh, judgment. And that's what this passage is all about. So we can take a deep breath for a moment because this is actually really good news. Because Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount is on the ground and in the real world. Jesus is being realistic he knows that your life is filled with circumstances that will either make you wholly angry at injustice or because you're human and people will wrong you, you'll just be regular angry, as we are most of the time. And so this is why Jesus gives us like this three-step progression of anger in verses 22 and 23 that detail out how remaining in anger is actually toxic to your soul and toxic to your life. It's not productive and it makes you powerless and enslaved to it and all of that. And so Jesus is, is teaching us how to be free from that toxic anger. Glenn Stassen puts it like this. He says, we know that stewing in it, continuing to live in anger, is a mechanism of temptation that leads to alienation from God and neighbor, to a desire to insult and dominate or even be violent, and therefore to destruction and judgment. Now, before we go any further, trust me, I'm not standing up here admiring the view and looking down on all of you who haven't quite figured it out yet. I am in process just as much as anyone. In fact, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm like a semi-closeted one on the Enneagram. Which I, it's not something that I like to admit because ones left to ourselves, we have this tendency to have high expectation and we're prone to being judgmental. And uh, Brittany, who's a friend and co-worker, she's the director of ops here at Riverbend, yesterday uh, she texted me this Instagram post and uh, this is what it says. It says, things that an Enneagram one may say. Why can't people just do the right thing? I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. You should. What's the plan? I'll just do it myself. Literally all things I've probably said this week, she knew that, which is why she texted me, and she said, is this accurate? Smiley face emoji. I was like, yes, and they should have hired a better graphic designer to design that Instagram post because it's terrible, it looks horrible. You know what I'm saying? The Enneagram ones in the room know what I'm talking about. So obviously, Enneagram, I just have to say this, Enneagram is way overplayed. And it's uh, nowhere near as important as the message from scripture, right Danny? My buddy Josh, we just were at this conference and he let us know that. I heard you loud and clear. If you're listening to the podcast, Josh, we love you, man. Um, but Enneagram has been helpful for me to face my shadow side of idealism and repressed anger. What that means is I tend to like stuff the things that bother me until like the smallest, most insignificant thing just sets me off. It could be a piece of misplaced garbage and I'm turning into the Incredible Hulk in front of my kids. Um, and there's hope for us because the heart of Jesus' teaching is not a command to never be angry. He's living in the real world and he assumes a certain amount of messiness in your life. The heart of Jesus' teaching is to go find the brother or sister that you're angry with Try to sit down with them, talk things over, and make peace. 
And so the rest of the passage really instructs us how to deal with our anger in a way, in a healing way that removes it. That's what the passage is about. It's about uh, dealing with our anger in a healing way that removes it. So there's five commands, and it, they're not to be, it's not, the command is not to not be angry. That was a double negative. I don't know if that, any of that made sense, but just follow with me. There's five commands. Being angry is not one of them. They make up Jesus' pattern of healing broken relationships. Jesus' pattern of healing broken relationships. Leave your gift. Go. Be reconciled. Offer your gift. And make friends quickly. These are the actual commands in this passage that you and I are instructed to live out. Not don't be angry. But let's walk through these. Okay, so the first one is this. Leave your gift. It's something that we may or may not understand the context of. Uh, essentially, Jesus is teaching personal reflection and introspection in your rhythm of worship. That's what he's teaching us. So um, if true righteousness isn't just about the outward expression of rule following, if it really is about the heart of the matter and not just the outward rule following, then we can't just do our morning devotions or come to the Sunday thing, worship, pray, teaching, communion, generosity, and then move on with our day. If it really is about the heart of the matter, then we have to pause long enough to reflect in the presence of God, where has my heart been this week? Who have I wronged? What feelings and attitudes and cycles of anger have I fallen into? Who's wronged me? Who do I need to go to and offer forgiveness to? Am I harboring any unforgiveness? Remember, God asked Cain, why are you angry? He already knew the answer to that question, but he still asks it. Why are you angry? Why does he, why does he ask? Because if we are humble in the presence of God, and if we're present to it, anger can actually be a helpful diagnostic tool. It signals to us that something is wrong. I experienced this, by the way, this week, yesterday even, as I was getting ready for this message, uh, because apparently God loves irony. Um, and I was angry uh, at the interruptions in my week that had made it so that I kind of missed my day off and I was just had to work yesterday too. And I was having to notice that. But see, anger is only a helpful diagnostic tool if we slow down long enough to acknowledge, to reflect, to accept, and to take responsibility for our anger. And, and Jesus is saying in this passage that this is a function of Sunday worship for you. So don't leave your time of worship without reflecting for a bit. And if you need to, don't make your offering without making things right first. Remember, uh, Jesus also said in, in Mark chapter 11, he said, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. So there, I, I can't claim to understand it fully, but there is some connection in Scripture with God hearing your prayers for forgiveness and you offering forgiveness to someone who's wronged you. And we're going to get into that deeper in a couple of weeks, but that's kind of some, a sobering reality. There's some connection in Scripture with God forget, hearing and answering your prayers for forgiveness and you offering forgiveness to people who've wronged you. Number two, go. This is a simple one, but that's a command. In other words, he's saying take action. Don't wait for the person you're at odds with to come crawling to you and begging to you, on their knees to you, asking for forgiveness. That's just a fantasy land anyways. That doesn't ever happen in real life. You go to the person that you need to reconcile with, if it's safe. Sometimes it's not safe, but in many cases it is. So the reason why we resist this part of the scripture is because we have pride. We don't want to be the bigger person. We want the other person to admit how horrible they were to us. 
But again, that is just a fantasy land. Remember the plot. Remember the heart of the law, the plot of the law and the prophets. God made the first move toward you. Remember the plot line. Let's not get off the plot line. Um, A scholar puts it like this. uh, Going to make peace with your brother or sister is exactly what God does for us in Jesus Christ. God has reason to be angry with us, but does not stay distant. God comes to us in Jesus and makes peace with us. This is what the reign of God is about. Going to make peace with the person we are angry with participates in God's grace and in God's loving way of deliverance. So in other words, we play the role of God in the life of someone else when we go to them first, when we take action to bring reconciliation. And as a pastor, I'm often put in the position of being a mediator between two people or two groups of people. In fact, I could tell you multiple stories from this week alone if it wouldn't betray confidentiality, but maybe one day we'll be able to share some of these stories. But this is what I'm always looking for, always looking for in these conversations as a mediator because it's God's heart. When there is deep disagreement and when there is pain between brothers and sisters, I always say, you know what, this may be and probably will be very difficult for you. But would you be willing to humbly go to that person or that group of people? And would you be willing to sit down with them and try to make peace? And almost always, without fail, people immediately answer me back without even hesitating to think about it. Of course, I'd be totally willing to do that, no problem. But the other person, they probably wouldn't hear me because of this or because of that. And I have to say, time out, time out, time out. I didn't say, do you think they would hear you out? I said, are you willing? Is your heart soft enough? Are you able to go to that person humbly to try and work things out and try and bring reconciliation? Remember Romans chapter 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this is what I remind people, you cannot control how somebody else reacts to you, responds to you, what someone else does, but you can show up. The question is whether or not we have willing hearts to follow Jesus' path, to follow Jesus' way to bring reconciliation, which leads us to the third command in Jesus' pattern to heal broken relationships, and that's this idea of be reconciled. That's another command, be reconciled. So this is the power of the gospel. Reconciliation is the power of the gospel. I do not have a lot of faith in myself, or quite frankly, you. Not, Not to say that in a harsh way, but I do not have a lot of faith in us to break the toxic cycle of anger. But I do have a ton of faith in God's ministry of reconciliation, as 2 Corinthians put it, puts it. It is, by the way, this idea of reconciliation is God's main task in the universe during this era. In this era, in this epoch of the universe, this is God's main task, is bringing reconciliation. And he is very, 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 very good at his job. He knows what he's doing. And I can have faith in him and do have faith in him to bring reconciliation. So if you want to know what reconciliation really looks like, all you have to do is look at Jesus on the cross. Look at Jesus on the cross. And and he's saying, watch and listen, because I'm going to show you how it's perfectly done. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. 
So this is a stunning, I hope the gravity of this is like fully in your lap right now. This is a stunning and perfect picture of what it means to make peace. Notice that Jesus didn't wait for the apology to offer forgiveness. It was instantaneous. But in the moment that he was being betrayed and was being hated on and being killed, he pleaded to the Father for their forgiveness. He had already moved past the personal forgiveness. He had forgiven them and he was pleading to the Father. He was interceding for them and saying, God, would you please forgive them? This is incredible. So yeah, I can chill out about the misplaced piece of garbage, right? Real strength is not harboring anger. It's following Jesus' example of, of radical forgiveness. That's what real strength is. In fact, that's what, um, when, Jesus, when Jesus is depicted on the cross, this is the crowning, victorious moment of the entire Bible. So through his sacrificial death and through him bringing reconciliation, we know what real, true strength is. And he's giving you and I the opportunity to participate in that reign of God, to participate in that victory by making reconciliation with one another. So Proverbs 19 says, it's to the glory of a person to overlook a transgression. It is to the glory of a person to overlook a transgression. It is to the glory of a person to overlook a transgression. So you can decide to forgive someone regardless of whether or not they're asking for your forgiveness or whether they're seeking it and you can bless them and it is to your glory. You will be rewarded for the way that you model after Jesus' behavior by offering forgiveness. Number four, second to last, this is going to go quick. Offer your gift. Get back to worshiping God. It's who you are. It's what you were made for. Offer your gift. That's what, the, that's what the scripture says. Number five, settle matters quickly. I love that. Settle matters quickly. So this week I heard a story about a friend of mine whose uh, dad had been holding on to a major pain for like 40 years. And it was a huge deal. It was, uh, he was sexually abused as a kid in a, in a generation of young men who couldn't talk about abuse like that. And he was living with this pain for so long that it brought him to this complete place of desperation where he was actually considering committing suicide and had been for a long time. But in a moment of great desperation, he finally opened up about his story and what ended up happening is he described like this incredible weight coming off of his shoulders and it was like he was a whole new person. It's amazing. I consider that a miracle. We pray for miracles and healings and things like that all the time. I consider that a miracle. The toxic cycles of anger bring destruction to your life. And remember God's word to Cain. He says you can master it and you can do well, but don't wait. Because the longer that you wait, the deeper the cycle becomes. Sad, settle the matter with your brother or sister quickly. So a couple years ago, Nicole's killer went to trial for his murder of Nicole. And the jury came back really quick with a guilty verdict. I mean, like really quick. The evidence was overwhelming. And then after that, the trial goes to the sentencing phase. And throughout the entire process, Nicole's killer hadn't expressed any remorse for his actions. He was just completely non-emotional in the courtroom. And as you may know, with a conviction like this, um, they have, like, in, during the sentencing phase, they invite the victim's family, if they want to, to address the court. And so Rich, who was Nicole's dad and my former pastor, he takes the floor and forgets about everyone else in the room and just says, Jaime, I want you to look at me. He says, on behalf of me and my entire family, I want you to know that we forgive you for taking Nicole's life. And we hope that you take our forgiveness as an opportunity 
to think about your own mortality, to think about your own soul, to think about your own life. Please accept our forgiveness as a new start for you. And then he sat down and his wife, Jordy, Nicole's mom, stood up and she said, Jaime, look at me. Not how dare you violate and throw away my daughter's life like it was nothing. She said, I pray for you every day that you would receive forgiveness from Jesus. And if I've done my job here today, I hope that you can see that this is God's heart for your enemy. This is God's heart for the ones who've most deeply hurt you in your life. And everyone in that courtroom, by the way, was completely stunned. You can read the article on Oregon Live. It's actually pretty cool. The true, unabashed grace of God is profoundly upside down from the world's way of dealing with evil. What about poetic justice? What about why should we let this person off so easy? Well, God's heart is for reconciliation. That is where true power, true strength actually lies. So Jesus was angry when that man took Nicole's life. But the scandal of the cross is that he also died so that man could be forgiven and accepted into God's family. That's the scandal of the cross. And it's hard for us to accept, but this is the reality of what God is calling us into. It's to not be bound by the toxic cycles of anger, but instead, pioneer, make peace, be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. So just a couple questions for your reflection, and then we'll be done. Who do you need to reconcile with? Who do you need to reconcile with? What is God's heart towards that person? And what do you need to do next? Those are the questions. Who do you need to reconcile with? What is God's heart towards that person? And what do you need to do next? And as I pray for you, I just hope that you can absorb those questions, think about those questions, maybe take a picture of those questions. Don't let this moment go by. Remember Jesus said, settle these matters quickly. Don't give your offering before you've gone and made this right. This is God's way of keeping us on a short lease and keeping us on the way of reconciliation. This is how we partner with God in participating with the reign of God that's breaking in on the earth. Your ability to forgive sisters and brothers who've hurt you, who've wronged you, offering forgiveness. So let's pray. Let's stand to pray, actually. Father, I realize that the only reason I can call you by that name is because while I was still opposed to you and the scripture describes me as an enemy to you, you sent Jesus to die in my place and forgive me of my sin. And I recognize, God, that there is nothing that I could have done to enter your family if it, were not, if it had not been for you, Jesus. I would not be here. I would not be standing here today. And so we recognize your glory, your majesty, your great forgiveness of us. We thank you that you're so good at your job of bringing reconciliation. And we see this passage that you've given us, that you spoke over us, Jesus. as the way to pioneer real peace, to break the cycle of anger. And so God, we just pray that today, right now, you would deliver us from anger. I pray, God, that you would flash in our mind's eye the people that we need to reconcile with. I pray that you would give us your heart for those people. And I pray that you would give us next action steps to walk in. What do I need to do next? 
So Riverbend, please don't leave this moment without responding to Jesus' teaching. We're gonna sing this next song and it's just perfectly worded for the message that you just heard. And I wanna encourage you to sit in it, to hear the words being sung over you and to join in the anthem. God, you are so good and we love you and we pray these things in your name. And everyone say, amen.